Welcome to the Fantasy End Podcast, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. Welcome to the Fantasy End. Welcome back to the Fantasy End Podcast. This week, we have a special treat for you. We have two guests with us today. First is Tasha Suri, author of Empire of Sand and Realm of Ash. And we also have with us our first returning guest, K.S. Filioso, who is the author of the Agartes Epilogues, Blackwood Marauders, and most recently, The Wolf of Orin Yarrow. Both are actually authors published through Orbit, which is somewhat of a coincidence, although we are all great fans of Orbit at the Fantasy End. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So in, in general, how have you been? I know these these are interesting times we find ourselves in. Everyone doing okay? We're doing great, <laughs> considering... <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't often get asked, how are you doing in the pandemic? Because <laughs> <laughs> this is all kind of new and strange. Um, but in the within the context that we are living in a global pandemic, I'm doing really well. I, su- I, I suppose that's about as much as we can hope for from anyone at this point. <laughs> I, just, I bought a switch light to pass the time. And also because I really wanted one, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, comfort purchases are justified. Have you bought Stardew Valley yet? No, I, but I got Animal Crossing. Does that count? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I think it was the first purchase I made when I got back to the States. Well, to to uh, sort of kick things off, uh, what does everyone consider to be great world building? I know... That can be very personal. Everyone might have their own interpretation. Uh, but Kay, Tasha, what do you consider personally great world building? Do you want to go first, Kay? Uh, sure. Like for me, it's it's world building that affects the characters. So the like great world building to me, the characters have to react to the world. Like they have to live in it. They have to. Like really, the, the problems of the world affect the characters' desires or whatever they want out of life. And not so much of the world building and the characters are different, if if that makes any sense. That makes yeah. total sense to me. And I was um, hoping you would give a good answer so I could just like copy you. Um, <laughs> so I agree. Um, I think that for me, good world building is, is world building that feels very, very real. It feels very lived in. Um, and that is all about character because it's about the character feeling like a real person interacting with a real world that feels real. I've said real quite a lot, but I think, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I think it is all about the character having a world to interact with that doesn't feel 2D. It has to feel as if um, you can feel the ground beneath their feet. You know how they interpret their surroundings and what their surroundings are, whatever those may be. Yeah, because like th- there's a, there's people who are like more concerned with economics and so on of a world, like having these really 
detailed world, but if the characters who are in it, they don't feel like they actually, the, those things affect them. It, it, there's just a disconnect for me. <laughs> it's like reading a history book and then the characters are off doing something else. Oh yeah, definitely. I yeah. mean, it's, if, it's one thing if your character is an accountant, if they then know about accounts, but like, yeah. my, my thinking is always like, as a person, I don't know very much about global economics. So yes, it's very unlikely exactly. that if someone, yeah, if someone was reading a book about my life, that there would be a section on global economics. Unless <laughs> the global economy crashed, then, then maybe there'd be a section on that. Yes. I like the idea of a world where you can close the book and still imagine the characters doing things in that world if that makes any sense yes like i don't know and you mentioned like a you know history book um the idea that you know i don't read fantasy to relive my you know history days i'm not a historian but uh just that general idea that you know like tasha was saying and uk was saying that it's real you know feeling that the world isn't just a cardboard cutout but it's you know hey i went to this real place and it just happens to be you know have magical elements to it you know yeah yeah i think that with that it has to feel real to the characters like if if the characters believe in this world even if from a maybe from a logical standpoint it's not it doesn't make perfect sense but as long as it makes perfect sense to the characters and they they have their own desires within that bubble within that world it feels really real to us yeah i think that's that's one of the main things for me as well is connecting any kind of world building through the characters because it's much easier to get me invested wholeheartedly in a great character than it is to invest me in a totally different world from our own so as long as the character really cares about the world and we're seeing it through their eyes i think for me at least that's the easiest way to sucker me in yeah it, it's it's really why i love tasha's books too <laughs> No, don't compliment me. I can't cope with it. No. Yes, let's do it. Let's all compliment each other. Yes. We'll compliment Kay on the next question. <laughs> I was just going to say, for me, like personally, you know, reading about reading books with great world building, they all tend to have that element of I can read the book for, you know, 50 to 100 or more pages and feel like I'm literally in that world, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm not just mm. reading a book, but I'm experiencing the story myself. There's there's a real trick in world building, and I don't really know how it's done, I, where you have to convince the reader to fall in love with the world. And it's not even that they'd necessarily want to live in it because 90% of the world's in fantasy. If one of us stepped into it, we would die within <laughs> five seconds. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> but okay, I don't want to go in your world. <laughs> no. Okay, if I entered any of your worlds, I would be dead so fast. I, you know, I love to read about them. It's like, 
you you have to read the world and think, wow, I would love to be somebody cool in that world who wouldn't die. But uh, it, it's a real trick. And some authors do it really, really well. And some don't. But I think it's one of those tricks that you have to do well in fantasy. Otherwise, you're just never going to bring the reader along with you. Yeah, I really agree with that. I guess going on from that, you know, we have talked about great world building, uh, being real to the characters. How do you start, you know, you know, like what is the foundation for making a great world? Shall I go first this time? Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, my answer is really wishy-washy because I love using history and you know myth as a basis for world building, but that's not the foundation. That's not where I begin. I usually begin with a feeling or an aesthetic, um, which is you know very art, darling. But it's um, it's still true. So with Empire of Sand and Realm of Ash, I really loved the aesthetic and the feel of Bollywood films set in the Mughal era, which is the era that I used as the inspiration for those books. So it was things like the colors, the, the, the jewels in the ceiling, the way people dress, the way they moved, things like that were the spark that started me off building the world. And they were the thing that I always returned to no matter how I shaped the economy or um, the society. I wanted to keep that feeling or that aesthetic alive all the way through. For, for me, it just like we said earlier, it starts with character. So when I start, there's just a, I, I don't often know where the character, like w which part of the world is going to like inspire this character, but the character's problems and their issues is where I start. And then I kind of think, oh, from that, like what kind of society or what kind of environment is going to create this character? So in The Wolf of Orinyaro, I actually already had the world set up and I had this particular situation with her dad where this, this tyrant was rising into power. And I also wanted to like, write a story about a strong woman and I thought that is like I wanted to explore it from that angle where she's the daughter of this tyrant and it just went on from there I would comment but other question but I'm really bad about world building in fact I've never written anything so um, but I can definitely see where your coming from especially you know Tasha you mentioned the just starting with the feeling mm -hmm. yeah and for me personally the only thing I've ever written would be like you know poetry but I kind of get that sense too um, back when I used to write a lot more um, you know, it never, it's not really willfully in poetry, but still that essence of, you know, you start with, like, what's the feeling that I want to invoke? Um, so for me, that really resonates. Sorry, my cat is... Was that your cat ending. purring? That is my cat purring. That was such a lovely purr. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, the, <laughs> the 
you know, you start with a like a feeling, like um, what's the feeling you wanna you wanna portray? And I think I think that can go with uh, you know, Kay, what you mentioned about the character too. Um, you know, just the general saying feeling a lot aesthetic of this daughter of a tyrant. You know, where do you go from there? How will she be? How will she fit into this world? Yeah, it's it's like I I, I it's almost like with, with me the the character is like say you have an empty canvas and the character is in full color, and every time they walk, the just their surroundings become more and more fleshed out, and that's how I go through the story. Like every time they take a step their surroundings start to gain more color until you have this whole canvas filled with color because they've gone through their whole journey. I really like that image. Like you yeah. can kind of see that all building up. Oh, that would make such yeah. a good book trailer as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can visualize that. Um, shame none of us can do art. Can you do art? <laughs> I can do a little bit. <laughs> Not not in a way where I want to show everyone what I've been like doing. <laughs> okay, fair. fair. Um, I can only do stick figures, so that's not very helpful. Um, <laughs> that aside, that aside, um, I think my my writing approach is much more Pinterest board. Um, it's and in fact, I do use Pinterest boards to help me um, come up with ideas. Uh, it's that kind of like, uh, what are the colors? What are the materials? What are some of the vistas? Um, I see everything kind of like a music video, uh, with the characters in the background of the story or, or the image until, um, I actually start building up the world and then I start to get to know them. I, I do think it's very important as we discussed to make a world real, the characters have to interact with it in a real way. Um, but that's not where I begin. Um, also that cat purring is just so lovely. <laughs> I keep trying not to laugh really loudly. <laughs> no, it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, my, my cat just abandoned me, so. <laughs> my cat is extremely clingy. Oh, they haven't seen you for a long time. <laughs> his name is Cat. So. Cat. <laughs> <laughs> it's effective. Um, well, so I, I find it interesting that you both are talking about kind of starting from kind of like this solid core. You either have this aesthetic or you have an emotional relationship and you kind of build it around the characters that come from that. So... All of these wonderful visual metaphors are a little bit lost on me because apparently I found out recently that I have aphantasia when it comes to reading. So I don't really picture things that clearly in my mind compared to what some of you might be. But I do see like starting with a core of something that I can latch onto as a reader, even if it's not visual, I can then kind of shape my experience of the story around that. So what, what do you find that I, I can't even imagine that because I am very, very visual. So what is it that you you sort of latch onto in a really good fantasy book? What is it that kind of makes you go, yes, this is some really good world building? Oh, um, everything kind of fitting together where you'll see interesting ideas in isolation 
and then that's carried forward into something else. Like maybe there's a certain cultural trait that then affects the economy, that then affects international politics, mm -hmm. and then all of that sort of tied with the magic system. Uh, so kind of that cohesiveness is really interesting. And I like books that start where you kind of get a surface level overview and over time you learn more and more. Mm, that makes sense. You mentioned economy and now I'm just picturing Tasha the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I am terrible at maths. You will notice in none of my books is there a currency system and that is because I'm not interested in making one. <laughs> they exchanged money for goods. Indeed. It's always um, some kind of gold or silver or um, or just money, just money of some description. Or maybe they barter, but no currency is ever mentioned. I usually just use coins, but in The Wolf of Orinharo, I had to have a con, and so I had to have money. <laughs> How is it coming up with that? Was that fine? I, I don't even remember because I pretty much blocked it out because I'm also very bad at math. <laughs> I was scared it wouldn't work out because I'm like, I'm just waiting for someone to say, hey, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it passed the, like the copy editor. So, <laughs> yay. I, um, I always think that in world building, although you can do quite a lot of research, a lot of the time it's just being really confident in your lies Yes. Um, like for example, I don't know how people travel through a desert. Still don't have a clue. Looked it up. <laughs> didn't understand. Um, you know, I also can't dance, and um, <laughs> Empire of Sand is centered around dancing. I have two left feet, um, so I did my research. But there's probably a feeling to dancing well that I can't even imagine. So I had to make it up, and so far people have fallen for it, and. I still don't know how you travel through a desert, but I made it up and no one's gone. That was really inaccurate. So I think that there is an element of just convincing people that this is okay and you can just accept it. I, like, I think it's going back to that where if the characters are convinced, usually the readers are too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a lot of winging it and going, yeah, yeah, it works. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that writers would make very good con artists. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you could say, you know, someone ever calls you on it. It's like, well, that's not how you travel through, you know, the Sahara Desert, or that's not how you travel through the Gobi Desert, but it's how you travel through my desert. Yes, and my desert was yeah. magic, so it makes sense. <laughs> I feel like people who will do that would not be in our audience anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. And I think that fantasy readers have been trained to ignore the fact that journeys never take as long as they should, which is also very helpful because traveling everywhere on horses, which I think is the usual kind of fantasy method or by ship, uh, takes time. And uh, we don't have time for that. Like our books are long, but not that long. I have a trick where I end up like killing half of the horses that show up in my books. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's only one person that needs to survive the Wolf of Orin and we all know who that is. So. Rael. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> 
Oh, Tasha, have I got a treat for you for the second cover? I'm already sweating about your second book, just like palpitations. God, I remember reading the self-published version, and now, like three years later, you're finally getting the third book. Maybe. Yeah, third book is next year. All I'm saying, as long as Rael and Tally end up happily ever after, <laughs> third book is a success. Hey, if you plot twist, if you plot twist, kill off Tally, I will scream, but also commend you. <laughs> Don't don't take that as a challenge, please. Please don't. <laughs> it's it's done. It's written. Whatever happened, it's done. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Tasha. You're you're getting an introduction to my one person shipping fandom of Ryo. <laughs> I think it's just you. It, it really no, is. Uh, my husband's on that ship too. What? Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> what? I know. <laughs> I think I, I told him he's projecting a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> I literally have my arm on the table and my forehead in my hand, just staring into the middle distance. Are you doing that? What is the Patrick Stewart gift? Yes, I am actually doing that. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I guess carrying on from where we were talking about. A lot of times readers are just willing to accept something, maybe if it doesn't actually work out uh, in the real world. How, how do you think stories, especially fantastical stories, can incorporate real world influences effectively? And I, I guess I don't mean just physics and economy and all that, but also uh, culture, religion, whatever you want to do with that question. Should I go first? <laughs> uh, yeah. So... E like for me, I think it's really, really hard to incorporate something you have not grown up with. So it's like, it's really tricky to just say, do X amount of research and you will be able to reliably pull this off. So maybe like, again, more important thing is to focus on character first with the understanding that if you're drawing from other cultures you have to maybe understand a bit more about how that culture thinks and what's important to those people instead of focusing on the outward research where it's because you, you might end up using stereotypes to kind of try to make the world more and more real in your eyes but it may not be accurate or like respectful in that way so if it's from maybe a point of view of learning about a new world, it there's nothing wrong with writing it from your own experiences where you're learning about that world. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's how I I view it. Like that's why I always say with my world building, it's always I, I'm like it's from a point of view of a Filipino, and I use a lot of like. Like maybe maybe I'm not doing an exact replica of the Philippines, but I like the issues of the culture. I know it like the back of my hand, and that's how I kind of expand on the world, and th that's how the, it's influenced. I I think you have a real point there. 
there is an experience like I think in philosophy it's called like a qualia if I'm wrong please don't correct me um <laughs> of our, of a, a feeling of what it feels like to live in a certain society or cultural world and if you're writing a fantasy that is explicitly a non-western fantasy say ottoman or east asian or southeast asian or south asian whatever it may be that experience of existing within that society is quite difficult to find in in any research material it is it's very much a lived thing that you kind of have to understand and I think that applies in a lot of different writing circumstances, but the I know that in my own books, the experiences that Meher and Arwa, the, the heroines of each book, have are partly shaped by my own understanding of being from a culture that is more collectivist and values family and values a certain conception of honour and duty and also of um, respect and self-dignity. And those things shaped the stories and the world building in a way that no amount of research could have. But I also think the research that you do and the research you can't do, frankly, is different depending on what you're writing. So yes, if you're writing a a quote unquote non-Western fantasy, you have to be aware that there are certain things you may not be able to research or access, and you may then not be able to represent the world that you're hoping to represent as as well as you wanted to. But there are also fantasies that are very far from being connected to a specific cultural context in our world, in which case you can do a lot of research from different contexts and read about different governmental systems, et cetera, et cetera, and just go wild and do as much research as you want and um, create something that feels very new by Frankensteining a lot of different stuff together. If you're writing something that is, say, a kind of like cod medieval setting, there may be you maybe don't need to do as much research because we've already got conventions in place and tropes in place for what readers will expect to see. Uh, weirdly enough, I think the the time that you need to do the most research is if you're writing historical fantasy, because then people know what's wrong and you have to get it right. And, <laughs> and they will tell you if you got it wrong. Yeah. Um, But the kind of awkward thing there, just to go on a slight tangent, is that if you're writing historical fantasy in a context that people know well, you both have to do a lot of research and accept that if you research too well, people will get mad at you because (laughs) people have an idea of what, say, the Victorian era was like that doesn't entirely match the Victorian era. So um, if you want to talk about the food that people ate, you have to either match the kind of convention of what people thought Victorians ate or you need to get it word perfect to what they actually did. That was a bit rambly, but basically you could do a lot of research or very little and everyone's going to be mad at you either way. So just do Yes. <laughs> That's a good I, conclusion. <laughs> I think, you know, basing, if you know, if you base it on a real world culture or even a con- conglomeration of real world cultures, um, you know, part of it, you have to, also keep in mind, I think, is not realizing that, you know, one culture, so like from my experience, like Mongolian culture, isn't, and you'll know this, it's not just one thing. So like where I lived in the 
far west of Mongolia, the cult, their culture was probably uh, completely different than, you know, the far east Mongolian steppes. Or even so, like, I lived in a, a big town, and so the whole, like, nomadic part didn't experience that. That wasn't a part of my town's culture. So I guess trying to be not rambly, I guess it's just, you know, a thing of even just one quote-unquote real-world culture can still have multiple different faucets and you know what I mean oh yeah Yeah. I mean like even in London people would be able to tell the difference between somebody from East London or West London or North London and they feel really strongly about it and that's just one city in one country yeah people are complicated in uh in the province in the Philippines where I came from like two kilometers every way and the dialect changes <laughs> so like i can only speak one dialect but there's a like more more common dialect that i can understand but i can't speak but like my cousins are very good at speaking it but like not only does the dialect change but i can kind of see how like the way people think changes and it's it's really interesting to to notice like like my mom and dad are coming from different towns and they make fun of each other for their like cultural <laughs> differences. I think they have like a word like my mom's dialect, which is the one I speak. They have a word for hole, which means a tiny hole. But then in my dad's dialect, it means a large like well like hole. And then they're just making fun of each other endlessly for that. There is no roasting, like intracultural roasting. Yeah. <laughs> One of my teachers who I worked with, he said he would go to the capital because he has family there. And he'd say, sometimes I start talking and they go, what are you saying? We can't understand anything you're saying. And that's that's when I learned that the accent or the dialect I've been learning is completely different than the one that they use in the capital city and the rest of the Mongolia. So, so I guess it kind of sounds to me, I know some common writing advice that I hear uh, when you're trying to incorporate maybe cultures that you're not intimately familiar with is to kind of zoom in on a specific character's experience because no matter what you write, it's never going to match an entire culture's experience. Uh, Like all of you have been saying, uh, so many examples of cultures varying vastly just with a few kilometers distance. Uh, So I I don't know, is that something that you would agree with? Yeah, I think so. Like the, the, the biggest thing is to avoid making generalizations about that culture. Like these people are like that or those people are like that. It's like you're really playing with fire there. And I mean, we've seen so many examples of that in kind of like very beloved traditional fantasy. I mean, uh, the, what's it called? The, wow, my brain has gone complete. The Bulgariad, (laughs) that's it. That's the one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I really loved it as a kid, Um, but it is very much that kind of like 
these people are the barbaric people and these people are the evil people and these people are the the sexy people and it's you know and you, uh, yeah and you get you get that kind of world building in a lot of sci-fi as well um and it's just and it's like, like it, it doesn't even have to be bad you can generalize them as if they were good and like really noble people and it's still <laughs> very patronizing <laughs> Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, I know it's a beloved series, but I'm just thinking of like uh, Star Trek. You know, where each race, like each alien race, is this one thing. You know, at least in the older series, like the Vulcans are logical. The Klingons are, you know, war people. I think, like in that context, if it's not the kind of race that you can immediately associate with a real world race, then <laughs> that's where it's tricky. Like it's tricky when you make a race and you could immediately see like, oh my God, those are like, like Asians. <laughs> it, that, that is where you, that is where you, it, it gets really dicey because then it's almost as if, even if you're saying that it, it's just a fantasy world or so on, but you are making, a generalization that real people can suddenly associate themselves with. Like, say we're playing Warcraft and we're talking about orcs. The, I, nobody, like, the, nobody sees themselves as an orc. So you, you got room to play with there. But as soon as you start saying that you're drawing from other cultures to make a fantasy world more complex, but what you're saying is that, like, marginalized people, like people like from other races that don't see themselves represented very often, that they're just for play. <laughs> they're just entertainment. <laughs> see, this may be, I, I don't know if this is a controversial view, but I think that the Vulcans are very clearly meant to be East Asian. And, you know, it's it's everything from like the clothes, the hair, the, you know, the, the kind of odd approach to oh yeah yeah it's all it's all kind of in there um and i think you see even in like the picard series with that like really adorable killing machine dude um he i can't remember his name i'm sorry he is very clearly kind of dressed in a kind of east asian style and it's those kind of associations that we're meant to be making in our head however subconsciously that okay, those people are the Asians, and it defaults American, specifically American whiteness, to the norm, and makes oh, everything yeah, yeah, else yeah. the alien. And I do feel like a lot of fantasy is trying to get away from that very consciously, but it's very embedded into the tropes and narratives of the genre, which kind of is is difficult to break away from. And I think part of maybe just to bring it back on topic, part of world building is looking at your world building and working out where you're kind of falling into those tropes and those narratives that aren't necessarily what you want to be falling into and don't help you tell your story any better. So, yeah, like, I think maybe like talking about the research part of this, uh, maybe the research should not just involve like the history or the cultures, but mm -hmm. also the way, the way storytelling has progressed and how we are affected by such storytelling tropes and norms of the past and how we may progress like moving forward, how we can improve the way we tell our stories. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. So kind of 
Yes, now going forward, um, and Tasha, you also mentioned, you know, even if you want to make a new race or make a new world um, that isn't based on the real world, how do you even do that? Like, how do you make new world building? I, I, I'm not sure you can make anything new. Um, you just have to sort of, you can't make anything new. Yeah. <laughs> nothing is new in this world. Everything I is agree. <laughs> but I think you can, there is certain, there's a certain level of elasticity. So you can be very close to something real and you can be further away. So for example, if I'm making a, let's go with a faux medieval world, but I want to put it into, um, but I'm going to take that and I'm going to use the tropes of a Western and then I'm going to make it matriarchal. And then I'm going to make the governmental system reflect, um, I don't know, let's go with the Ottomans. I mentioned them earlier. I'm going to make it an Ottoman governmental system. Immediately, even though I've taken real things and I've put them together, I've made something that is different. That doesn't mean I won't fall into tropes um, about certain races or cultures or peoples or or any kind of other toxic tropes that might be out there. But it does mean that I've created something that in terms of that kind of elasticity is a little bit further away from the real world than if I'd said, for example, I'm going to set this in um, a Castilian court in a certain century, but I'm going to make it second world. Yeah, it's it's like the, the way I approach my world building, I actually draw a lot from Filipino culture, but I did not like 100% use Filipino like settings or stuff like Jin Sayang is maybe half of it's like Canadian. And it, it just, <laughs> it, it's what, like, it's what I know. We're, we're like, we're, we're talking mountains and snow and stuff, right? Like dragons. Yeah. Yes. I love that. <laughs> but like the, the thing is it, when you start doing that, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, it's different. Like it may not be hundred percent new, but the way you've approached that and the way you're drawing from yourself, it it just becomes a new thing. Like there are hun like basically limitless ways. There's nothing original, but there's nothing exactly the same as long as you're not like copying somebody hundred percent. Your your perspective is always going to be unique. So draw in yourself, like draw in your own unique perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I kind of, as a reader, don't understand why I see so many people saying, oh, this like one idea is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And it's amazing. And this work is therefore a masterpiece. Because I found more and more that I'm very much not wowed by individual ideas. I mean, there's a huge difference between an idea and a story. And that's probably a whole other conversation. And there's just so much more to it for me. So I, I agree that pretty much, I mean, we, we live in the real world. Everything we create is somewhat influenced by the real world. And, and I don't know, as a reader, it's just kind of nice to see what you writer types come up with. God, I'm just thinking like, when's that story that Tasha just described going to come out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, when she said that, I'm like, I want to read this so bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> like on the spot world building. <laughs> If, you know, once I said it, I was like, wow, medieval Ottoman Western. Hmm. 
That would be quite fun. <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> I'm just imagining you, like, in a room with people and going medieval, but make it Western. I, I'm sure somebody has done this. Somebody must have done this. It's it's like those writing prompts that are like completely random and then you, you make up something really cool by the end. Right, I'm throwing this out there. Anybody listening to this, feel free to write it. <laughs> if anyone ever wants to write a fantasy that is based purely on Mongolian culture and is written in English and not Mongolian, please. Be the change you want to see, cop. You would be amazed at how horrible I can write. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think there is sort of like a Mongolian-inspired fantasy, but I haven't read it, which isn't helpful. So I can't be like, this is great. So I think Elizabeth Bear's Eternal Sky trilogy, but I don't know if it's outer or inner Mongolia. And that's the most confusing thing. So just in case people don't know, outer Mongolia is Mongolia, the country, and inner Mongolia is the Mongolic part of northern China. Oh, I didn't know that. It's really, I was so confused. It's like, why isn't inner Mongolia the country? Huh. But... Because human world building is actually completely irrational. (laughs) (laughs) And yet if you did that in a fantasy world... You would not get away with that, no. It's like, have you seen online, there's a very poorly made fantasy map that's in reality just someone taking, I think, Europe and turning it sideways and pointing out like how terrible all the world building decisions are? One one of the best world building things I read was in um, a novel by Margaret Atwood, and it was the one where she makes fun of romance novels. Can't remember which one that was now, so this story will make no sense. But um, she has a character in the novel writing romance novels, and the character does um, a huge amount of research into historical underwear, because obviously in romance novels you're going to see a fair bit of underwear. (laughs) So she does all this research, all this research, and then um, the editor comes back and is like, you don't need to mention all this. Just say they took their clothes off. And um, I I actually think that's very good advice because you can over-research something. So yes, it's more realistic, for example, to describe the the many, many layers of underwear that somebody has to wear in a romance novel. It's also more realistic to have Inner Mongolia be in China than and then have Outer Mongolia be the country. But that is too much world building. Nobody needs that level of detail. They, yeah. they need enough detail that is significant and interesting to add depth and richness to the world of the characters. They do not need to know any more than that. Yeah, and... Speaking of underwear, which is not a transition <laughs> I thought I would be saying ever. Um, so how, how do we focus our attention on like the macro versus the micro elements of world building with underwear obviously being kind of very drilled down to a specific detail versus maybe uh, an entire society or how a city operates or the world's climate at large? Like how, how do you, I guess, build each of them separately? How do you divide your attention and so on? Tasha? <laughs> I was going to say K. 
why do we why do we want to know what the underwear looks like? <laughs> that's that's basically like that. That is my level of detail. Like there is a reason why I'm describing something, and it's gonna play. Like maybe it doesn't play up an important part right now, but it's going to come into play with the plot or the character. So are are you describing Chekhov's underwear? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So if I describe underwear, there's a reason. <laughs> Chekhov's underwear. God, that one's going to stick with me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, In case worldly underwear would be used to strangle someone. Yes. Yes, <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, I think the micro is important if it's important for the story and for the characters. Otherwise, you don't necessarily need to know it. I mean, maybe the author needs to know it, but nobody else does. Uh, so in something like, uh, if you read a novel where the magic system is all around, say, dance, since I use that, um, you need to know how dance works <laughs> because that's kind of key to the story. But if you've just got somebody dancing in the background. Absolutely nobody needs to know what the style is. Nobody cares. Uh, having said that, in my most recent book, I definitely did describe the style of the dancing, even though nobody cared. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave that in anyway. But yeah, I think, but then again, I also think it's a matter of preference. There are some writers who really, really love going into the micro detail. And they like to bring that into the world. And sometimes people reading the book love to see that level of detail. In, for example, The Goblin Emperor, I always feel like the author knew everything about that world, knew everything about how people interacted with each other, how the economy worked, how titles were used, how the poor lived, how patronage worked, everything. I felt like she knew all of that. And it added to my reading pleasure because I felt like I was really deeply immersed in a very confident world. But I wouldn't expect that from every book, and I think for some books it would be a negative. Yeah, like you got you you have to know what kind of book you're writing. Mm, yeah, because like the conventions come into play there. If you're writing epic fantasy with a political like intrigue bent, you may get away with a bit more detail. But if it's supposed to be like an action adventure type novel, yeah, you're you don't want to linger more than a page. Or maybe like I think I've erased like half a page of description. I've taken it all out. Like I'll write it down just so I know, like Tasha said. But uh, like if it doesn't serve what's happening in that, like for for that book, for that genre, in that particular moment in time, because sometimes I I can put detail in because it's a slow, it's a like it's a slow section of the story. But if it's fast, like you know, somebody's chasing some someone and there's like death happening. You don't want to linger too much on like you know somebody's underwear. <laughs> she stabbed him through the chest. <laughs> I think it also, you know, with the level of micro detail, like micro building, um, you know, you also have to keep in mind. Um, how you present it so like if you just straight up info dump everything maybe that could work you know depending on your preference um 
but you know as a reader something i really enjoy and you know this happened in both of you know your series is introducing little bits of micro world building without it overtaking the story you know so like the for example the food and his books or just the um the dancing i can't dance i don't know anything about dance but you know like you said it's convincing and it wasn't it's done in a way that's kind of just yes he's a food metaphor like a little spice here and there but not overtaking the story and i think if it's like if it's important to the character to the point of your character, there's a way to make those details come to life. Like, even if maybe they're not that important to the plot, but like with Tally, she likes food. <laughs> and that is why she describes the food. I'm pretty sure if I wrote a book from Rael's point of view, he would not like talk about the food at all. Well, I know as, as a reader, I really appreciate if like certain things are like really examined closely in detail, but only a few things, right? Like if you can convince me that the food is really well thought out or that the system of dance is really well thought out, I'm willing to assume that you know how to travel through a desert or how accountants do their mm -hmm. job or anything like that. Because if you can show me mastery of something, like I'll assume that the rest is covered. It's like the, the iceberg theory, right? Like I'm perfectly happy seeing a wonderful 10% floating of ice with nothing underneath. And I do think there are things that readers want to know about and things they don't care about. Like, no one has ever asked me how sanitation works. Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, that's an important part of life, generally, but it's not something that is necessary to bring up in a book because people won't question it. They just don't think it's that important. Whereas something like how people get married in a book about an arranged marriage suddenly becomes very important to question how people get married. Just that kind of thing makes a big difference. and But I think it can be quite difficult not to info dump, especially if you're taking people out of a setting that they're familiar with. So again, faux medieval, something people relatively well understand. If you create a gothic setting, again, that's something people will generally understand and they don't need context clues in the same way as they would if you take them into like a completely weird and wonderful fictional world setting or one that is outside of a context that many Western readers will be familiar with. And I think one of the tricks that makes it easier is to have a naive main character that doesn't know a lot about the world. And that allows you to kind of introduce everything as you go through. And Everybody explains to them. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you can even have a character who is quite worldly wise, but is thrown into a situation that they're not familiar with like Tally. And then that allows you to introduce bits of the world through fresh eyes because the eyes of your protagonist are also fresh. Thank you. Yeah. I guess to use like another example of a book I recently read, The Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Rowanhorst. There's a part where the main character describes seeing sugar for the very like for the first time in years and it's just like not a throwaway line but it's just a single line in the book that really stuck with me for you know just that kind of small little detail that added for me a lot to the world building um 
And I guess speaking about example books, what other books do you think have, you know, good world building? Hmm. I mentioned The Goblin Emperor, which I think has really good world building. And Can I steal Tasha's answer? <laughs> <laughs> It does, though, right? Because the yeah, world... Go on, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, it's just, it's a very immersive, confident world. And again, like Kay said earlier, you have to think about your audience and your aims and what kind of book you're writing. But I appreciate a book that goes, this world is complicated, you'll catch up, and then just takes you along with it. And I think it does that really, really well. Yeah, the premise is this naive, like, emperor who knows nothing about the court because he was raised away from it so like everything being introduced to him makes sense it's very helpful to us as readers definitely yeah um another book that i think does world building really well especially on a micro level is um rowena miller's torn which is another orbit book you're welcome and is all about a woman who is a seamstress that can sew magic into clothes and what I liked about that book is that she, the author clearly knows how clothes were made historically and uses that to really inform the magic system and also the the production process of clothing and the experience of being a non-wealthy person within the kind of political context that she builds up. And you can kind of feel the confidence, but also the touches are quite light so instead of that kind of heavy, detailed, but really lovely thing that you get in The Goblin Emperor, you get this world that's sort of more bold but confident brushstrokes that's also built on a really strong foundation. Um, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking Jade City by Fonda Ooh, Lee, yeah. which is another Orbit book. I think we're just... <laughs> <laughs> this podcast episode is sponsored by but... Orbit. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'll probably get in trouble for saying that. We're not actually sponsored. Yeah. Not as a joke. <laughs> yeah, like her her world building is it's just superb. It's like it feels lived in, and it doesn't really hold your hand. It's more like you you want to discover the world as the characters are moving on with her, like with a with a crime drama that's happening in front of you. But it feels real. Like, it just will go on even after it's done. Like, after you've closed the book, you can see it unfolding. Yeah. Like, I think she didn't She didn't base a specific specific culture or city, but, like, to me, growing up in 90s Asia, it was, like, it was very familiar, <laughs> which was great. I just desperately want that to be made into a film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Such a good film. Like, no, a TV show, then we can stay in it longer. <laughs> two examples that i want to give that are not orbit and i'm really sorry um, <laughs> are and i they're different but you can make the argument like similarities would be um the starless sea by aaron morgenstern um and then also Palimpsest by Kat Valenti. Mm. So the Starless Sea is just this, I don't know how to describe it. It's, I guess magical is a really, I know, great description, but 
it's like I don't know if I think of like a fantastical you know world the star of the sea is what comes to mind um and then palimpsest is just like it's a city but make it an std that's a great (laughs) great description (laughs) make it an std (laughs) and i remember reading it and finishing it and it was it was one of the first because I've read all of her books. It's one of, it was one of the first books by Monty that I had read. And I remember finishing it and being like, what was that? I need it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and for me, both, I think both, um, and I just mentioned this earlier, but have this, I guess, mythical... Um, writing style to it that kind of you know slightly poetic um slightly straightforward kind of prose quality that um kind of adds to the worlds and i think that's why they've you know resonated with me i think both i mean i haven't read palimpsest but i've read other things by valenti and i get and erin morganston and I feel like what they both do very well is that aesthetic feel quality that really convinces the reader to kind of go along with what's in the book. It's that they're just so delightful to read that you're like, yeah, I'm on board. You don't have to explain this any further. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the kind of flowy quality to the prose, it, 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 like, it starts a spell from page one that just like, and that's how the world kind of develops from there. Like I, I'm thinking also Maguire, Gregory Maguire mm. does something similar. Trav, do you have any examples? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, <laughs> so apparently staying within orbit, uh, a recent book that <laughs> I read that I really enjoyed the world building and among other things was The Bone Chips by RJ Barker. I love that uh, book. Yes. So, I mean, just right from the beginning, you realize this is a world that's very different from our own. Uh, Other than humans, I don't think there's any mammals in the world. Uh, There's no trees as we normally understand them, so they don't really have wood. So instead of that, they're building ships out of literal bones of giant sea dragons. And it's a society where all the world building decisions are directly embedded into the language. So it's a matriarchal society, but instead of saying men and women, it'll always be women and men. Or ships will now be him instead of her when referring to them. Uh, So I really appreciate that attention to detail. I've not read that one, but I really mean to. (laughs) It's it's real dark and nasty. It's great. Well, so I guess directly following on talking about all of these other books that we all enjoy, we've kind of danced around the edges of talking about the two of your books, but I guess let's have some elevator pitches. So Tasha, do you want to go first? Sure. (laughs) Um, So I have two books out at the moment, um, which are both in the same duology, um, the books of Amber, and they are Empire of Sand, which is about um, 
the illegitimate daughter of an imperial governor who has the ability to control the dreams of gods through dance. She's tricked into an arranged marriage and she has to use all her courage and cunning to save herself, her husband and the world. And the second book is Realm of Ash, which is about the widowed survivor of a massacre who makes common cause with a disgraced, illegitimate, slightly goth prince. Um, and together they use forbidden magic to try and save the empire from nightmares and um, bring back the dangerous knowledge of the dead. And I have a book coming out in more than a year, so maybe I don't really have to promo it, but it's called The Jasmine Throne. And it's about a captive vengeful princess and a maidservant who are both awful and work together to bring down the prince's tyrant brother. Yeah, and uh, how about you, Kay? How how would you elevator pitch your books? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm K.S. Billy also. I write... Uh, epic fantasy that is character driven with an emotional bend my book the, the, the only book i have out now is the wolf of orenyaro which is about a queen whose husband and king abandons her five years ago but now he sends a message to her saying that they're gonna meet up across the sea so she against against all advice she goes to him and shit hits the fan <laughs> <laughs> Very poetically described. I like it. What, what Kay is not saying is that she lulls you into a false sense of security and then just stomps on your heart. And she keeps going, here's a character. Look how soft and lovely they are. Do you want them to be safe? <laughs> just like constant, constant emotional torture. It's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> People are like, fuck you, kid. And I'm like, thank you. I mean, does everyone who reads your books just threaten you? Like, immediately yes. after? Oh, yeah. I got, I got like, DMs. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I was one of those DMs. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Well, Kay, uh, Tasha sort of hinted at some of her upcoming work. Do you have anything coming down the line in the future that you can talk about? Uh, well, the sequel to... The Wolf of Orignaro, the Ikisar Falcon, is out in September. And then Book Tree, where the name isn't announced yet, is out next year, May, if everything goes well. <laughs> like for the characters or in real life? Oh, no, in like in our real world dystopia here. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, I think that wraps up about everything we have for you. Uh, so I guess on a last note, if we can talk about where to find you online. So Tasha, where can people find you? Right. The best place to find me is Twitter because I'm stuck in my house and lonely. Um, <laughs> on there, I'm Tasha Drinks Tea because I drink tea. Uh, I also have Instagram and a website and those are Tasha Suri. I, like, best way to find me is on Twitter as well. It's K underscore Vilioso. Probably better for to provide links later on. <laughs> yes, we'll, ha we'll have links yeah. to all of these in the show notes. You can just swipe yeah. over there and click on them to find them. All right. Well, this, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Tasha, Kay, for coming on the podcast. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fun. If you enjoyed this episode, consider supporting us on Patreon, taking a moment to rate us in your podcast app, or sharing the episode on social media. 
As always, you can find us online at thefantasyn.com and on Twitter and Instagram at thefantasyn. Or, you know, just hang out with us in our Discord server, which you can find through our blog or in the show notes. That's all for this week. Until next time.